Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We all know that paying for gas is not a luxury. It's not a perk. It is an absolute necessity. Higher gas prices means less money for some of the lowest income earners in our province. We're putting it back into the taxpayer's pocket. They're going to have a little more money in their pocket to go out and shop, stimulate the economy. That's our plan. I know he's saying that he'll take 10 cents out. We know that um, most people won't feel that, won't feel that. The reality is that, um, that the, the, the prices fluctuate, you know, the prices vacillate wildly. I think one of the things we've seen uh, across the country is that the incentives uh, that come from uh, better beha- from uh, better choices, uh, making choices <laughs> to be cleaner and greener uh, is exactly what we want. <laughs> No, I didn't say that. No, no, no. I, 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 I didn't say that. I never said anything that, that it's better behavior by paying more for gas. Did I? I think one of the things we've seen uh, across the country is that the incentives uh, that come from uh, better beha- from uh, better choices, <laughs> uh, making choices to be cleaner and greener, uh, is exactly what we want. Gotcha, Justin. Uh, you gotcha. Oh my goodness. Dan McTague joins me, former Liberal Member of Parliament and uh, GasBuddy.com, Senior Gas Price Analyst. It, it's, it, I don't know. It boggles the mind. The man, the man digs his own, own holes, jumps into them, and then claims there was no hole. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he's uh, trying to satisfy two constituencies and he can't do both. Um, and obviously either it's a bad case of amnesia or he has one message for one audience and one for another. Either way, um, you know, modern technology provides the opportunity to pretty much record everything that you say and do. So uh, clearly I think he's probably, well, his initial statement was the one that is far truer. Uh, he is not too interested in a lot of Canadians, especially as they're trying to manage these dramatic increases that are perhaps more severe, in fact, far more severe than the United States, where prices up here are ranging about 20 cent or percent higher than they were this time last year. So uh, it, it's a very unfortunate circumstance, um, but it's one that I think the uh, governments of this country are going to have to learn uh, is in a very hard way that uh, the public is not amused with uh, having to pay uh, what is uh, not just high prices for energy, but uh, compounded by these massive taxes, including the HST. Yeah. Dan, the thought that occurred to me as soon as I heard Doug Ford say that he would cut the gas tax by 10 cents a litre, uh, two thoughts occurred to me. First of all was, how would you necessarily know, because gas prices go up and down quite quickly, as as Kathleen Wren pointed out, I'm not I, I'm not siding with her. I'm just saying she was correct about that. So how would you know? And then the more relevant question, the more direct question I asked, and I want to put it to you, if one of them can do it, why can't they all do it? Well, I think they won't do it. One, because they, no one's actually quantifying numbers for them. Uh, let me do that here. Uh, the 25-cent average increase per liter, and that's just for gasoline increase, represents a potential windfall of a 5% GST of about $560 million. I'm not including jet fuel, I'm not including diesel, and that's based on 25 cents. If it goes much higher than that, of course, the federal windfall in and of itself would be about a billion dollars. So if they're not aware of that, that's surplus money or additional funds that they never anticipated, but is uh, certainly going to uh, enrich in the coffers of the national government. At the same time, the province here in Ontario, uh, but the same is true of provinces east of uh, Ontario that uh, add 
uh, an additional 8 or 9%. Uh, in one instance, uh, the Maritimes, 10%. That means, of course, those provinces, including Ontario, are looking for a windfall of about uh, 800000 to $1 million per day. Per day. Per day. That's right. And that's money that uh, no one's talking about, but I thought it was important to recognize that when you raise... Well, when prices go up 25 cents a litre, the effect of a 13% HST uh, only compounds that increase. So, for instance, here in my province of Ontario, uh, the provincial government is picking up $0.02 cents net on every litre that they didn't get this time last year, and the federal government one25 uh, And you work the math uh, accordingly. We sell 45 billion litres of gasoline in Canada every year. Here again, and not including diesel, jet fuel, and other uh, fuels, which add up another probably another third to that number, but just sticking with gasoline alone, uh, that's a significant windfall for federal and provincial governments to the tune of about $2 billion this year alone. You know, I have to say that I, uh, I just thoroughly and fundamentally object to governments um, with intent uh, picking our pockets, taking from us what we, what we cannot afford to give. We're already such a my point of view, anyway, massively overtaxed national entity. Linda Leatherdale said something really interesting a few weeks ago on Beauties and the Beast, and that'll happen later on today as well. Okay. Linda said we should be able to afford our income taxes instead of having people uh, sometimes have to borrow to pay their taxes. I find it so abhorrent that governments would just, to meet their own needs and to cover up for their own mistakes, in the case of Kathleen Wynne and their their financial lack of expertise, uh, and I'm being generous when I say that, I find it just so objectionable that they would look at, at, at picking our pockets as something that is to their, to their benefit. Governments are supposed to serve us. We're not supposed to serve them. And, you know, I don't believe, Dan, that we're getting value for money spent. No. Well, I, was, you know, I served at a time when we came in with some pretty tough decisions, and everybody had to pay for the federal cutbacks on spending. Uh, I hear a lot of spending announcements uh, in this election. I don't hear a lot of saving announcements, and I'm worried about yeah. the totality of debt. But let's put it in perspective. Um, I was able to work with both Prime Ministers Martin and Kretzen, you'll remember this well, to get two GST rebates, because I thought it was odious, and I think at the time, Liberals uh, of my party thought it was extraordinarily uh, gratuitous for us to go out and uh, cash in on these higher prices. So they gave it back one way or another. We can argue about the means in which you do it, and I think that's why uh, Mr. Ford, uh, for uh, this policy announcement alone, uh, is far closer to what I'm hearing in terms of the public's angst over the inability to pay, especially given these massive increases. And by the way, $0.10 cents on a government of Ontario, which over the past eight years has increased it $0.15 cents a litre, in my view, still makes it so the provincial government is, uh, is ahead of the game at the end of the day. But uh, reality speaking... Uh, many people cannot afford this, and it's uh, it's becoming apparent that between hydro and fuel, uh, you better have a better argument than talking about the environment because uh, people are not buying into that. 72% of uh, Canadians have now said they're not buying into this now that they re- realize what the cost is, and it hasn't been when he started. Well, Darrell Bricker told us about a week or two ago that when the words carbon tax were first introduced, people thought about carbon, they thought about the environment. They heard, that's what they heard. Now they just hear the word tax. Well, they hear the word tax, but what's it being used for? I mean, you can make all sorts of arguments as to how we should become more efficient and whatnot. I'm suggesting that with these higher prices, people are becoming more efficient. Governments are receiving far more money to achieve those objectives of reducing and incentivizing people. So rather than going and picking in everyone's pockets, why don't you simply take advantage of the windfall that you received here, which, by the way, I think is more like $2.5 billion between federal and provincial governments this year alone, based on the higher cost of energy. That, to me, would be a more sensible way of approaching this, and I think most Canadians would be on board. But suggesting that, uh, you know, uh, we don't, uh, you should perhaps change your vehicle, you should uh, find a different way, use it less frequently. I mean, that's, an, uh, it, it's frankly demeaning, very insulting, especially given my good friend uh, many years ago, Dennis DeRosier, he pointed out, pointed out the average vehicle in Canada is now 10 years old. People simply can't afford to buy a new car. While many of them are, those new vehicles are far more efficient than we've ever seen in, in, in any time. Uh, the reality is that uh, as prices go up, people have less and less means in which to make ends meet, especially given larger taxes and a greater bite by the governments, both federal and provincial, helping themselves during federal and provincial elections, as we see now. If the leading candidate for the premier's job in the province of Ontario can promise the electorate 
that he will reduce taxes on every liter of gasoline by 10 cents. And we would, uh, we would hold him to that being not just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then say, I'm sorry, I can't do it any longer. People would expect that to be a long-term promise. But if the leading contender for the premier's job at Ontario can make that kind of promise, that kind of commitment, then my sense is that they all can do it. If they have the right stimulus, in other words, either I do this or I may lose my nice comfy gig as premier or as an elected representative living a very nice life. So I'd better do something that people can relate to. And what can they relate to? Spending less money with the with the little hose in the hole in the side of their cars. <laughs> Well, there are three of the four parties that are saying uh, we want to tax you more, and we're happy with this. There's one saying we're not, and I think the public is going to uh, uh, take that into very serious consideration in three weeks. Uh, I know that uh, many of my colleagues, former Liberals, uh, people who've worked with me, uh, are, uh, are, are, are quite excited by this and uh, see that it's finally a, a breath of fresh air. I think you've taken people to the, to the, to the brink here financially. Uh, as Linda pointed out a few weeks ago, uh, people should not have to borrow in order to be able to pay their taxes. Mm-hmm. More importantly, uh, while we all have an obligation to do so, there also has to be some accountability and responsibility. The, the public is not an ATM machine, and uh, we have uh, an important uh, an important uh, social program system in this country which needs to be supported. Well, you can do that by simply turning around and allowing your pipelines to get through. So if Mr. Trudeau really wants to do something to reduce prices for Canadians, by all means, uh, get his friends together and proceed with building and let uh, let the uh, let British Columbia fight it out. In the meantime, that would have the effect of raising the value of the Canadian dollar and, in fact, uh, diminishing the price of all commodities, all goods and services for Canadians. Ironically, there's a lot more to this pipeline than most people realize. Well, let's have a listen again to what Mr. Trudeau's true feelings are. I think one of the things we've seen uh, across the country is that the incentives uh, that come from uh, better beha- from uh, better choices, uh, making choices to be cleaner and greener uh, is exactly what we want. Better behavior. <laughs> well, he's taking less green. He's certainly cleaning us out of uh, what we have left. The reality is they're doing a, you know, they're doing a hell of a job of that. D- Dan, one more, one last question for you. Sure. Why is the price of gasoline so significantly less expensive in the United States across the board than it is in Canada? Is it all pure taxes? Taxes, tiny bit of refinery profit, but the other thing, HST, and of course a weak Canadian dollar. Again, coming back to pipelines. Back in the days when it was 100 bucks a barrel, the uh, Canadian dollar was on t- pretty much on par with the U.S. greenback. It's not now. So when people are plugging those, uh, uh, stopping those uh, pipelines from getting through to get uh, the Canadian dollar to rise in value, remind yourself that these people are uh, economic vandals and their pocket, your pocketbook means absolutely nothing to them. Always great talking to you, my friend. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Roy. Have a oh, great weekend. You too. Dan McTague. GasBuddy.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Another horrific school shooting, this time in Santa Fe, Texas. I'm almost going to tell you what I think, for whatever that's worth. But I've, um... Today, I... I was wondering, why is there essentially so little coverage for what's going on in Texas. I know it's being covered. I know that the school shooting's being covered. I know there are news stories. I know that I know they exist. But it's nothing like the intensity of emotion and um, opinion that was expressed after the Florida school shooting. And I hope we're not devolving into um, a state of mind where, well, it's it's happened recently, so... We're not going to spend that much time on it. I don't know. I hope not. We'll ask uh, Dr. Farley about that. Psychologist will be with us shortly. But I'm just somewhat concerned about the fact that it seems to be almost comfortable to not talk about it too much. And it's not a case of, of we don't want to talk about it because it's too painful. That's not it. Anyway, there was uh, another individual... Bullied and uh, and a loner in this case, Demetrios Pagurtsis. Pagurtsis. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Pagurtsis. Doesn't matter. Seventeen years old, and his classmates called him weird because he walked around in a trench coat all the time. And well, he was wearing a trench coat yesterday when he opened fire on his classmates. Here are two of them. I was. 
thinking it was going to happen eventually. It happens, it's been happening everywhere. I was ready to run out, but my teacher told me to hide instead, so that's what I did. I was scared for her, I didn't know what to think. I shouldn't be going through this, it's my school. Like, this is my daily life, I should not have to feel like that. And I feel scared to even go back. These are kids. Killing kids. And there is a response, and it's the standard response, that it's guns and gun owners who, um, and, and the lax um, restraints on obtaining guns in the United States. That is brought up time and again. It has again. But I started thinking, and I've mentioned this to you earlier, I started thinking about what it is that kids consume in the way of entertainment, young people. Watch a movie, uh, it's almost... It's almost it's almost accepted that there's going to be uh, gunfire and people are going to die from from uh, shootouts and and then you uh, television series the same thing and and then the the video and the computer games it's uh, the same thing you know you rack up points by by the numbers of victims you create and so it becomes they become emotionally desensitized. Uh, Tony Bernardo is the executive director of CELA, Canadian Gun Owners Lobby Group uh, in Ottawa. And, uh, Tony, we we in, invariably talk to you at, at times like this, and it's because gun owners are brought into question and gun ownership is brought into question, and there's an instant um, fear, I think it is, of, of, of gun owners. I wanted to ask you this, because you deal with the politicians in Ottawa. What kind of reception do you receive from federal politicians of all stripes when you're representing the gun owners of this country? By and large, Roy, it, it's a positive one. I think that most people recognize the fact that most legitimate firearms owners are certainly not the problem. Remembering, of course, in Canada, we have 2.1 million people with firearms licenses. Um, most of them will have at least a few guns, because the guns are like golf clubs where they're only good for certain things, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Um, many of the members of parliament and senators uh, come from a rural background where firearms are treated with the same kind of considerations as shovels, and um, they're just a tool that is used agriculturally. Uh, to make sure predators stay off the farm or to do any other of a number of different things, including feeding families. Uh, what's happening in the States, is, is, it's beyond the English language to express the sorrow that people are feeling on this stuff. But sadly, it's going to keep happening again and again until we start looking at the real reasons and not the deflections. And I don't know how we get people to talk about this. It's, it's as plain as the nose on your face. What are the real reasons? Notoriety. That's simple. Every single one of these kids, every single one of, not just kids, of course, because it's happening with, with older adults too, but every single one of them seeks the same thing. They seek fame. Mm-hmm. They even leave that in their suicide notes and manifestos. How many times have we seen, I, I will break the record. The world will know who I am. They will hear why I'm angry at the world. I'll have their attention. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something that's uh, some people probably take the wrong way, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I have felt for some time that it is, you're right, that it's the notoriety they receive and because of that notoriety, they uh, they proceed and they do what they do. These uh, commit these abhorrent crimes. Whereas in the past, before they got all the coverage, they would have just gone into their basements and off themselves. Right. Which it's, is it's a the way it's very elaborate suicide note. Yeah, I mean they they need help. They should get the help. But if they're going to commit suicide, if they're going to use a gun to kill, then let it let them kill themselves. I'm sorry, folks, if you get angry with me about saying that. Uh, that's. I'd rather see that than I'd than see 10, 20, 30 people, innocent people being killed. Get them the help, but if you can't, if they're going to use a gun, I don't want to see innocent people getting killed. Absolutely, and, and why? We have to answer the root question of why are they doing this? 
there's lots of ways to kill yourself without taking 10 or 20 people with yeah, you. Yeah. So, but, you know, but you're right, it's the notoriety. It's the they notoriety. have been they have been they've been um, in their minds maligned and they've been bullied and they've been pushed around and perhaps they have been maligned and perhaps they have been bullied and likely they have been pushed around and they're angry and they want to respond. Now somebody else has done it and gets a tremendous amount of attention, so now they're going to get the attention if they do the same thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere some some kid who fits the the description is being somehow um, be careful what I say here uh, is being is somehow thinking of doing the same thing. I, it's it's something that that has to be addressed. How we do it, I don't know. I don't know, Tony. Well, I, I mean, I think you have to start looking at the vehicle here. Um, for, first of all, you get just as much attention for shooting ten people as you do for blowing them up or setting them on fire, or doing any one of a, a thousand terrible things. So that's not it. The method is not is not it. What it is, and I, I, I know that I draw fire every time I say this, but I know I'm right. It's the mainstream media. They turn Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame into five days on CNN. It takes the average person out there... The, the, the kind of loner, bullied people, hurt, angry, trying to get back at the world, it gives them the pulpit they ask for. Tony, now, I, yeah. I realize this is news, Roy. I realize it's news. I also realize that if it bleeds, it leads. That's the oldest axiom in the, in the newspaper industry. But a hundred years ago, mainstream media made a tacit agreement amongst themselves that they would not publish the names of suicides and subway jumpers because every time they did the following week, there was a string of copycats of people trying to get their name into the paper. Mm -hmm. And it worked. It reduced those suicides by a huge amount. People were, were throwing themselves in front of the subway so they would the world would know that they were hurt, so hurt that they were going to kill themselves. When the media removed that, it went down. I can't see why the same logic doesn't apply here, because, of course, we both know it does. Yeah. Tony, thank you for the time. Always a pleasure, Roy. I, w I wish it could be under happier circumstances. Yeah, as do I. Tony Bernardo, Executive Director of SELA, the uh, lobby group for Canada's legal gun owners. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I had someone helping me keep calm. There was a girl in there having a very, very, very loud panic attack. <laughs> um, but it was quiet for after the shots for a really long time, and nothing happened. Hmm. So another teen loader. Another bullied teen. Another school shooting. Again, families are going to mourn their children. And is there someone somewhere right now, another bullied loner fantasizing about getting even and taking lives? And would it be fair to suggest the teens who commit mass murder are motivated to use firearms more by the con constant use of guns in movies, television shows, and games than uh, guns being owned by everyday people who don't resolve issues with a firearm? Dr. Frank Farley is a psychologist and L.H. Carnell professor at Temple University. He's a former president of the American Psychological Association, and his specialties include extreme behavior. And Frank, I had, a, I had an awful feeling when you and I talked about the mass murder in Florida that we'd be talking again soon, and here we are. It is entirely predictable and in the uh, <clears throat> since January 1 of this year, we've had more deaths by school shootings than we've ever had in the United States. Is it because, is it more because uh, young people, when they're being entertained, and maybe it's the loners who are being picked on and who are, who are bullied, who fantasize about getting even, um, is it because they are exposed or expose themselves to 
guns being used in movies, television, and uh, the games they play. So that becomes the default tool that they that they head for. I'm just asking questions, Frank. Well, <clears throat> I wish I was giving answers <laughs> that were definitive. It's hard, isn't it? But we have many more questions than answers. But... Yes, uh, we are a violence-infused culture. Uh, Gun is the tool of choice in American violence, and it's everywhere. Uh, Just as an exercise one day, I sort of ran the channels on television, and the number of times that a hand came up with a gun in it was astounding. A recent experiment is sort of instructive here. A fellow named Brad Bushman, who's a professor at Ohio State, did an interesting study. Now, it needs to be repeated, you know, and replicated and so on, but it was pretty provocative. He showed films to uh, kindergartners, and um, half of them, there, and half of, the, half of the kids were exposed to films with guns, and the use of guns and violence and so on. The other half of the kids were not. And the movies that they saw had none of that gun violence. He then, after the kids saw these films, they were turned loose in a uh, kind of playroom. And in the playroom were a whole range of toys and things to play with, including guns. He was able to use actual guns, of course, no bullets in them, But he was able to record uh, from the gun who picked up the weapon and what they did with it. And what he found was that the kids who'd been exposed to the movies, the films with gun violence in them, were significantly more frequently picking up guns and playing with them. And a key thing was pointing them at other kids. So, you know, it's just one study. It's done by a very uh, creative uh, guy, Brad Bushman. I know Brad. And um, it's provocative. It really suggests, you know, that we need to know more. We need to do more research on the earliest stages of uh, the development of aggression and violence. But um, there's something we call the, um, the weapons effect. It goes away back to the 1950s. And um, what the weapons effect is that sometimes the mere presence of a weapon potentiates aggression. So, you know, if you get in an argument and there just happens to be a gun somewhere in the vicinity, the mere presence of it may make the arguments much more aggressive. Mm-hmm. So that's another fact. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. We will assemble all stakeholders uh, to begin to work immediately on swift solutions to prevent tragedies like this from ever happening again. Well, you have to do that. There's the uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who also said um, that um, the individual who is who's been arrested... 17 years old, and uh, I have his name here, Demetrios Pagurtsis. Abbott says uh, that Pagurtsis had information in journals, on his computer, and on phones that indicated he wanted to commit the shooting and take his own life afterward. And then the governor said the suspect, quote, gave himself up and told authorities that he did not have the courage to take his own life although he took many others. Dr. Frank Farley is with me, psychologist, L.H. Carnell professor at Temple University, former president of the American Psychological Association, and as I said earlier, his specialties include extreme behavior. Uh, Dr. Farley is uh, from Alberta, was born and raised in Edmonton. So, Frank, um, when the governor says we're going to assemble all stakeholders, and try to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. I don't know what he's going to do, and it's interesting. I received a, an email from a listener a few minutes ago, and let me see if I can just 
uh, bring it up here. And uh, yeah, this is from uh, Brett. Roy, please explain to me, or have someone that could, why we don't have mental health money. We build wheelchair ramps and automatic doors everywhere for the physically sick. But it seems as though we don't give a hoot about mental health. Is it only me that sees this? Um, I think it's fairly recent that we've been focusing significantly on mental health. But are the resources in place? Are there enough expert people in place to recognize when someone poses a very serious threat to uh, to people as as this seventeen year old clearly must have been indicating something is there is there anything in place to to, to red flag situations like this? Uh, not much. Um, it, there's a serious problem with the whole red flag idea, mm-hmm. in my view. Okay, which is it's you know always looking backward, digging around. I call it red flag archaeology. We're digging around in the past of the person and trying to figure out why they did it. And that's a very long-term solution. It takes years and years to build up a sufficiently valid science of predicting extreme violence of this type. And we're not even close to it at this moment. Mental health is clearly involved, in my opinion, in all of this. In mass shootings, serial killings, School shootings are a special form of mental illness in my judgment, but it's not a form of mental illness that we know very much about. I don't believe it's captured in the standard diagnostic labels that we use every day in psychology and psychiatry. Uh, These people are a very special breed, if you will, and we don't understand enough of them. Most of them end up dead by their own hand or by the hand of the police, and so there are a few who survive. This kid is one. Uh, the Parkland shooting in Florida of, uh, of last February is another one, and we can study them. But we don't have many that have been studied. And so invoking mental illness and mental health, in a sense, lays a stigma upon people who, who are mentally ill, who would never kill a fly, but might you know, be viewed in a very negative and, and fearful way mm-hmm. that, oh, my gosh, maybe they could become a school shooter. Well, you sent me an email and you uh, you wrote there are two ways of preventing school shootings. One is proximal prevention and the other is distal prevention. What are they? Proximal prevention, in my opinion, is key at this moment in the United States, which is you... It's up close and approximate. It's, it's, it's in proximity, I should say, to the situation. In other words, harden the site. Protect the school. And um, how do you do that? Well, you do it the way that we protect courthouses, the way that we prote- protect all the legislatures of the land. We have metal detectors at every entrance and an armed guard. And... Uh, that has had an amazing effect on courthouses. There's very little violence anymore in, in courthouses because they have this proximal prevention going on. Uh, legislatures across the land are, pre, we're, you know, we're protecting the, the politicians. And uh, we shouldn't be doing any more for the politicians than we would be doing for our children. And it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Every door that is usable in a school is protected. It's hardened. There is a metal detector. No one gets into the school without going through it. And there is an armed guard there who knows his his or her business. This kid uh, in this current shooting in Texas got into the school wearing a trench coat under which he was hiding a shotgun and a bunch of uh, ammo as well as a pistol. Now, that's... That's just an impossible situation. You can't have that in schools. Mm -hmm. So that's proximal prevention. So what's what's distal prevention then? Distal prevention is this whole red flag idea, the idea that you, you look into the background, you look for predictive possibilities. The kid posts something on social media. 
in, in this kid's case, he, he posted a T-shirt that said, Born to Kill, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, early mental problems, early problems with the police, things that are a distant, quite some distant from the actual event. All right, so let me ask you this. And uh, we have about two minutes. When I was in high school, we used to talk about American schools that had um, metal detectors, because some of the schools had metal detectors. And we said, how bizarre to live in an environment where you have to have metal detectors at your schools or where you have to lock the school doors where nobody can come in where you have to identify yourself before you can get into school. There was never even the thought of, of, of this kind of activity taking place. And I can't remember it happening. It might have, but I can't remember it happening during my school years. What has fundamentally changed in society, if it has? Well, I think that we're more aware of violence, and for some reason schools have become a favored target. Uh, there's, one of the reasons is, you know, there's a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, um, and maybe they're so, the bullies who you feel victimized by. Indeed, yes. And so it's a 21st century thing. We got to get with it, and uh, we cannot have shootings in schools. And in my opinion, it is not rocket science to harden the site and stop the killings in the schools. Makes sense. No killer should be able to get in the school, and it's not rocket science to arrange for that. Okay. And that's Doc- where we should start, at least in the United States. I don't think it's a Canadian problem. Well, we've had school shootings here as well. So it's, yes. uh, it's an issue. And we, it's one, something, that we, something we can't take for granted anywhere anymore because the information age is so extensive that if it happens in the United States now, two seconds from now, it's going to be known around the world. Dr. Farley, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time, Frank. You're welcome, Roy. Dr. Frank Farley. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Michelle Rempel is the immigration critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, member of parliament for Nose Hill in Calgary. Michelle, thank you very much for the time. We got interested in the fact that apparently today there's supposed to be a no-borders crowd and they're going to be confronting individuals who want the border sealed and there could be additional to everything else that's going on. There could be violence at the border now. So it's it's just a it's just a, a a growing catastrophe. Well, let me start by being very clear that um, you know violence of any form is completely unacceptable, and no no person should be engaging in violence at the border. Uh, that's not something that uh, sh- should be celebrated or thought of as an acceptable option in in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, Roy, this is something that I've been talking about for over a year now, that Canadians support immigration very strongly because we are a country of immigrants. When immigration is done in a planned, orderly, and safe ma- manner, and what is happening at the Quebec border um, is, is, is highly problematic for several reasons. First of all, because it's not fair for people who, are, who have been trying to legally enter the country for years. Uh, it's 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 unplanned, uh, and and I've been saying that look, um, Canadians are going to lose faith in the government's ability to manage the immigration system, and when that happens, the government risks losing social license for immigration writ large. That is not what myself or my party want to see happen, but I feel that we're getting close, and the fact that the government has not done anything to rectify the situation outside of very expensive, very unsatisfactory uh, Band-Aid solutions that aren't working uh, is very concerning. You know, there's also the concern that as the stories spread about how easy it is to get into Canada, more and more people with migratory intent for a better economic reality or to have, in some cases, if it's MS-13, a criminal influence on, in, in Canadian society and impact, more and more people will be looking at Canada as an option and an opportunity to take advantage of, particularly with Donald Trump closing down the U.S. borders. Well, I, I by the public safety minister, by Ralph Goodale's own admission, okay, 
he has said that uh, many people who are crossing the border illegally into Canada will not have their asylum claims validated. But that will take years to happen. And then we know under the Liberals that removal orders are not happening. You know, you mentioned the MS-13 gang. Um, this is, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. This is, these are internal documents that have been publicized by the media saying that there is concern among our security uh, services in this country that this gang will take advantage of migration patterns caused by uh, Salvadorians entering country, uh, Canada through uh, the illegal border crossing crisis to establish itself. And, you know, the, the government's only response has been to say, well, this is fear-mongering. Well, I, I just, I refuse to accept that the RCMP are fear-mongers in this situation. They're supposed to keep Canadians safe. What's happening here is the government is abdicating their responsibility to manage the border. I have been on your show many times talking about the legislative options that the government has at their disposal to do this, and they have not done that. And here we are today. Um, you know, Ralph Goodale, the public safety minister, you've got to give him one credit for one thing. He's really good at saying a lot of things with emphasis that don't mean anything right like he hasn't actually he's said a lot of strong words but they've taken no measures to close the loophole in the safe third country agreement or use canada's sovereign right in parliament to redefine what the border is so that the safe third country agreement applies um it's ludicrous it is a perversion of our immigration system that was once compassionate and strong mm-hmm. to allow what is happening to continue to happen. What do you think the objective is? Now, last weekend we were talking on this show and we had your colleague Candace Bergen as a guest. And we're talking about the individual who identified himself to the New York Times podcasters that well, he yes. was a that he was an, uh, an assassin for for uh, for ISIS and uh, and Mr. Trudeau when it was brought up and he was challenged by Ms. Bergen and by uh, Mr. Bazan uh, another colleague of yours started talking about this being a divisive issue for Canada. What, what's, well, what's, what's the objective of, of, of this government? Um, it, it's, it's almost Orwellian, right? Like, in terms of using language like, oh, it's fear-mongering. Um, think about how irresponsible that is uh, to, to talk about legitimate security concerns. Like, I mean, the, the issue that Candace brought up with the ISIS terrorists, this is a death cult. I spent a year in the House of Commons getting Justin Trudeau to declare, declare a genocide against a, a group of people in northern Iraq that ISIS took tens of thousands of women into sexual slavery for. I, like, I, I, have, I, can't, I can't even find words to find how disgusting it is for Justin Trudeau to get up in the House of Commons and try and, you know, deflect from his responsibility. That's actually just what he's doing. I mean, you know, he goes and gives these saccharine addresses around the world, but is refusing to govern at home. And I think, you know, that he is managing to being liked. He is managing to his own ego and his own brand. He's managing to being a celebrity. But he's forgetting the fact that he's a public servant who is paid by the people of Canada to manage the government, which he is woefully unprepared and unwilling to do. In about 30 seconds, which is what we have left, what could the Prime Minister of Canada do? What would, what would, uh, what would, would you do? What would uh, Mr. Scheer do if he were the Prime Minister of Canada to address the border issue? We would immediately begin discussing with the Americans, renegotiating the agreement that we have with the U.S., which prevents people from making asylum claims uh, in, in one country after uh, coming to the other, so preventing asylum claim shopping, which... This agreement doesn't speak to the illegal or, or what happens when you illegally enter the country. We would, we would immediately seek to, uh, seek to rectify that. And if the Americans drag their heels on it, we would look at what right Parliament has to create laws such that we could redefine from a technical legal perspective uh, something such that the entire safe third country agreement would apply to the entire border. And we would have a problem that would be solved in a very short period of time. All right, Michelle. Thank you for the time today. As always. Thank you. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, We've spoken with reporters who have covered the narco war and are still covering it in Mexico. And they've told some horrifying stories. 
And uh, now there's warning, as we've been talking about, the federal government has warned Canadian police that uh, violent gangs, not just MS-13, but violent gangs, are trying to sneak across the U.S.-Canada border, and this is to get away from Donald Trump's immigration policy, which is ever-changing, and uh, MS-13 has been mentioned by name, but other ones apparently are as well, and the Prime Minister of Canada is doing very, very little. I was uh, reading a, um, a review of um, a new book called Gangster Warlords, and this is written by Nick Meroff, the Latin American correspondent for the Washington Post. Reading Gangster Warlords is like riding shotgun through the darkest battlefields of the drug war with a hard-boiled narcotics detective at the wheel you won't want to get out of the car. With terrific storytelling and analytical sweep, Grillo's guided tour lays bare the interconnected nature of 21st century crime and drug trafficking in the Americas. His warlords are the region's new insurgents, offering no ideology beyond power and riches. The ripples of their violence reach further than we tend to acknowledge, and they aren't going away anytime soon. Yoan Grillo, another report says, and we'll talk to him in just a few seconds, I'll read this to you, his newest offering, Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America, takes a look at the crime wars that are slowly swallowing up countries across the Latin American and Caribbean landscape. We read about the killings, mass murders, and drug-infested ghettos every day, but Yoan Grillo is out in front in the favelas of Brazil, the barrios of El Salvador, to the shanty towns of Jamaica. He is frontline and center reporting on what he calls the new battlefields of America since 2001. Gangster Warlords pinpoints a criminal insurgency that has spiraled into chaos and needs to be confronted now. Gangster Warlords. And Yoan Grillo has uh, reported as well for Time magazine and other major media. Yoan, thank you for the time and my apologies for mispronouncing your first name all day. No problem at all. Um, it's just a funny name. It's hard to pronounce. Uh, tell us, please, uh, who are the gangster warlords? What is this this new class of of gangster? And I'm thinking of some of the individuals who almost have a Robin Hood uh, uh, descriptor about them while they're committing massive and violent criminal activity. Who are they? Where do they come from? Well, I've been based in Mexico now for, for 17 years uh, and, and was covering... Uh, the drug violence here. Uh, and after a certain point, it became very clear this was no cops and robbers type situation. You know, this wasn't something just on the police pages of newspapers. This was a major upheaval, a major political situation. This was the main issue facing uh, Mexico. And I also realized this was not only Mexico, but very similar situations were happening um, down in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Brazil, Venezuela, and so many countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I traveled around interviewing many of the people themselves, the gang members themselves, as well as the police officers, the victims, and all kinds of people in these societies. And I would say that these gangster warlords, they're a weird hybrid. It's something in the 21st century. They are gangsters and criminals, but they're also political players. They're also major businessmen in illicit areas. Um, they also sometimes, like you say, provide Robin Hood-like social work in their communities. Um, and overall, they cause or, or part of this very, very destabilized situation in the region that has left many people to, to flee like refugees to the United States, to Canada, and to other countries. So when we talk about them, we're talking about the likes of El Chapo and Pablo Escobar, who to locals uh, were almost, well, they were heroes because they created opportunities for them. They, uh, they built them hospitals. They built them soccer fields. They made them feel like they were important and they were finally having somebody who, who had their backs. Meanwhile, uh, they're making billions of dollars and it doesn't matter to them one way or another how many people die in the process. Death is just a tool in the, uh, of the trade, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, anti-heroes sometimes, you, you, you yeah. that word. I mean, I mean, it's a very mixed thing because in these communities you have people who look up to them. You have people who say, I mean, I was recently in the mountains, you know, mountains uh, in the village of El Chapo, and I actually interviewed his mother um, and his cousin and various people um, in, his, in his community. And there's people there who, yes, say these guys are heroes, they build roads, they care for the sick. But then also, you know, I talked to the mother um, whose son was dragged away and murdered in this area, whose body was buried, and she finally discovered it after three years. Um, you know, you talk to people who have 
uh, you know, one poor girl who was in Honduras who was paralyzed, a 14-year-old girl who was paralyzed with a stray bullet, with gangsters fighting. So you have this, this terror, um, but also sometimes money, sometimes fame in these communities. So would Canada be a, an attractive target for these individuals, particularly at a time when our border isn't really defended or the border laws and rules about entering the country don't seem to be enforced with any kind of enthusiasm? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, actually many of these groups have been in Canada for a long time. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, Canada is, it, it, it is part of this because, you know, if you look at, uh, at drugs coming from Mexican cartels, you know, there, there's a, a long-established drug trafficking route um, of drugs going to Chicago and then going from Chicago up to Canadian cities. Um, uh, if you look at the groups from Jamaica, another another big uh, crime uh, family, these, these posses from Jamaica, they've long had connections to Canada. So, so, you know, Canada's been part of this situation for a long time. Now, with the situation of the gangs now coming, the MS-13 and, and other gangs, I think that there certainly is a genuine concern. Um, there should be a genuine concern about the growth of these gangs um, in these areas. Um, however, I would add that one thing is that there are, there are only a minority of the, of the migrants going into the country, a very small minority. And really to help fight the gangs, I think the police need to work well with people in these communities, including sometimes undocumented people in these communities. It's when these people are in the shadows that the gangs can grow, they can shake down people, they can kidnap people and take advantage of that situation. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The uh, book is titled Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. Think about that. Yoan Grillo is the author. He joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Yoan, as far as MS-13 is concerned, I read that uh, when they first arrived on the scene in Los Angeles, they were um, more like, they were trying to be like rockers, but they were on the outside looking in as far as the gangs were concerned, and they were victimized by the gangs that were there until things started to, until they started to change things. What's the story there? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, The very first uh, members who, who came from El Salvador uh, during the civil war in El Salvador back in the 1980s, and they were young kids, uh, often fleeing the civil war because the army would recruit child soldiers and the guerrillas would recruit child soldiers. So it was very difficult to be a teenager in El Salvador back in the 1980s. So they would pose refugees to Los Angeles and, and find themselves often bullied by Mexican-American uh, gangsters, by African-American gangsters. and They eventually formed their own gang, and they used to go to Black Sabbath concerts and have this devil's sign which became like, a, like an M eventually. They kind of flipped it around to become like an M, the Mara Salvatrucha. And then um, as they were bullied, they fought back, and, and people would come who were hardened, who'd been in the war, who'd been fighting with the guerrillas or with the military, and used to like using machetes. And they used to cut, you know, cut people up, hack people up. Um, and I was talking to one uh, a probation officer at the time, working with gang members, and when all these killings started happening, they didn't really know who they were. They suddenly saw these killings, appearing in Hispanic communities. They didn't know who this, this gang was, but it gradually got much tougher and got a very tough reputation. They, uh, they have a reputation. They've been on, on Long Island, New York particularly, and that's where they, uh, the focus was. Uh, I think when President Trump was talking about them, although they, they, he, was, he was looking also at a national perspective, but in Long, on Long Island, New York, they have a history of extreme violence and uh, murdered two teenage girls' best friends. They were apparently looking for someone else they were going to murder, but they came across these two teenage girls. One of them had, a, had at some time perhaps insulted a, an MS-13 member. Someone made a phone call to the local boss to ask what they should do, and the answer came back. This is, again, I'm just reading what I, what I heard. Uh, the answer came back, kill them, and these two girls were just viciously murdered, and they have a history of that in Suffolk County on Long Island. Is that, is that their normal modus operandus? It, it, tragically, it is. Uh, after 1992, when the Civil War finished in El Salvador, the United States deported many of them back there, and then over the 90s, to try and get rid of this problem. Um, but back in, in, in a war-torn country of El Salvador, they grew 
uh, became extremely violent and they could get away with extreme violence. Then they spread to Honduras, to Guatemala. And because they could get away killing so easily, uh, they used to make members murder to to join the gang, sometimes murder several people. Uh, And I interviewed various members down there who have killed sometimes over 30 people, sometimes even more, 50, 60. Uh, And it's quite incredible uh, level of death. So then they started creeping back into the United States, but as a much tougher, more violent gang than they were back in the 1980s. And for them to commit murder really is is nothing. Um, it is it is really very ordinary, very daily what they do. Fifty, sixty murders, one individual, and it's nothing. I, I mean, it, it is. I've gone talk with these people about you know when you first commit murder. Uh, often they first commit murder down in Central America when they're thirteen, fourteen years old. Uh, they you you have schools down there where there's. MS-13 members in the school, in the classes, and the teachers are terrified because the, the gang members can kill them if they give them a bad grade. Um, I mean, it really is, it really is that bad. There's no exaggeration. Um, Any time in El Salvador, in Honduras, in Guatemala, where there's, where there's gangs, you, you see this reality uh, where there's, uh, I mean, many, many tragic tales. Uh, girls in neighborhoods that, where a gang member wants to go out with a girl. He refuses his advances, and they, they kill the family. Uh, and these are stories you can hear time and time again in these areas. Your book is titled Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. And clearly these gangs, and not just MS-13, but the others that you uh, that you write about, uh, they do, in fact, threaten governments. The Mexican government hasn't been able to deal with the cartels. I've had one reporter say to me, you don't know who's winning some of the times, whether, and you don't know who's on whose side some of the time. But is this a, are these gangs a legitimate threat to in-place governments in stable countries or a legitimate threat to in-place governments in unstable countries? So, yeah, you're very right to point out a difference. Um, I think when they when they in places like uh, El Salvador, you have weak governments, or in Honduras, and some of these neighbourhoods, you see the resources the police have are quite few. So these gangs can really control these areas. They have the guns, they have the manpower, uh, and you go to these places, and the, the gangs are effectively governing these areas. I mean, they, they 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 have rules sometimes in the community about what people can do and what they can't do. And they really do control, and, and they make businesses pay them money. Now, it's very, very different when they in somewhere like the United States or Canada, where you have much stronger state, where you have much more powerful police. And so, for example, when I mentioned that the level of murder they commit in Central America, they do not don't commit the same level of murder in the United States because they're going to get caught much more quickly. Um, however, their growth is still, I think, a genuine concern. Uh, you know, I talked to one uh, guy who'd been a, a leader of a, of a cell of the MS-13. They're called cliques or cliquegas. He'd been the head of a, a clique of MS-13 in Maryland, and he was describing how they worked there, how they recruited young people in the school system, how they had hundreds of people in his particular clique following them, and they didn't only recruit uh, from Central American or Latino uh, background. I mean, there's you know also many different. Latino backgrounds they'd recruit from, but even recruit in the Chinese community, and recruit MS-13 people in the Chinese community, and shake down people in, in the Chinatown. So this kind of issue of extortion, of organized crime in areas, is something I think the government and the community should care about. All right. And we're not talking about groups that were in, in, uh, intact in the past tense. These are, or the past tense, these are groups and gangs that are in place now and are growing. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, these, these are these are continuing to grow now, and you know the, the MS-13 is definitely very, very big and, and continues to evolve and move around. Now, in terms of the one thing that is, that is very apparent and a different from down here in Mexico. I mean, I'm in Mexico City right now. I mean, here the gangsters are not scared to fight the police, to fight the military. Uh, the military will come and they'll attack them with start firing 50 cal bullets at them. 
you know, attack with, with RPG-7s. They've knocked down helicopters with RPG-7s. And they don't do that in the United States and Canada right now. I mean, they're much more cautious about fighting with the police and so forth. And one thing as well for drug cartels, and the MS-13 do work with drug cartels as well, sometimes selling on their, their drugs and moving kilos of cocaine and so forth. The thing about drug cartels is they value the United States and Canada because they're giving so much money in terms of buying their products. I mean, both countries, they're spending billions of dollars buying heroin, cocaine, um, crystal meth, and these various drugs that are coming from Latin America. They don't want to mess up that market where they're selling drugs and making so much money. Yeah. I have to say, I, I just <laughs> I said straight up, when you talked about fighting the police with the RPGs and, and shooting helicopters out of the sky, this isn't, this isn't just uh, this isn't a gang fight, this is a war. Yeah, that, that, I mean, you know, it certainly is. And I, mean, I use this, this, this word of kind of crime, war, this mix of crime and war, because, you know, that particular incident, uh, you know, they, they killed eight soldiers and a federal police officer when they shot down a helicopter. There was one uh, battle, which, which I, I documented, uh, one battle where there was 500 gang members fighting wow. 2,000 federal police officers. Ion, uh, there was that. Ion, thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us from Mexico. Thank you so much. All the best to have you. A great, have a great day. All the best. Thank, thank you. Much. Gangster Warlords is the book by Yoan Grillo. What a story. And this is going on now. This isn't just, as we said, past tense. And there is concern. It's been expressed by national intelligence agencies in this country, passed on to municipal police forces about MS-13 entering Canada disguised as migrants. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.